Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Trial Alchemy. I'm Monty McIntyre, your host, and today I'm delighted to have as my guest in Denise Taylor. Now, Denise is one of the two founding partners of Taylor DeMarco LLP in Los Angeles. And she has been for many years defending doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare professionals in medical and dental malpractice cases. She's tried or arbitrated over 150 cases and has special expertise in high exposure cases involving birth injuries and other catastrophic injuries. She's been the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including being recognized in Best Lawyers in America, Southern California Super Lawyers, Law Dragon 500 Leading Lawyers in America, and as Top Woman Litigator by the LA Daily Journal. Denise is a diplomat of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. She's also served in many positions in ABOTA. She was the president in 2012 of the LA chapter of ABOTA. And in 2017, Denise served as the president of all the California chapters of ABOTA. We call it Calabota. She served on ABOTA's National Executive Committee as a treasurer from 2014 to 2016. And she continues to serve on the National Board of ABOTA. And she's chaired or co-chaired many committees, including the Diversity and Long-Range Planning Committee and the Presidential Task Force. Denise was president of the Association of Southern California Defense Council in 2013. She's also a fellow of the International Society of Barristers and a fellow of the Litigation Council of America. So without any further ado, Denise, thank you very much for joining me today and being a guest on this podcast. Nice to be here, Monty. Well, great. I wanted to start off with uh, this question that I'd like to ask folks as we begin the discussion is, will you share with us one of your uh, satisfying trial victories that you've experienced during your career? So anticipating that question, I uh, reviewed uh, my list of trials and there were many, many satisfying ones and some not so satisfying. But um, you've asked for one. So there was a case that I tried about eight years ago uh, with several co-defendants. It was against one of the most, uh, I'd say, uh, well-known aka famous plaintiff's lawyers in town and a younger lawyer at the time. Um, And it involved a woman who was claiming she was paralyzed from a failure to diagnose a Mm. condition called transverse myelitis. Mm. And it was a very sympathetic case. Now, 
early on in the case, it was very hard fought. And early on in the case, uh, we went in and I asked for a trial continuance. You mentioned I'm involved with Aboda because the Calaboda group was having a uh, Hawaii conference. And I said, I would like to have a trial continuance for that conference. And the younger lawyer said, absolutely not. I'm opposing your request. Well, that was not the most civil uh, response or yeah. uh, appropriate way to deal with any oppo opposing lawyer and especially not me. So uh, I have to say that I was the um, kind of the lead defense lawyer in the case. And we had some sub Rosa investigation on the plaintiff. Oh, wow. And she lived out, uh, didn't really live out of town, but lived in the West Valley. And this was a downtown trial. So she was staying at the hotel uh, right down the street. And we uh, had not only Sabrosa investigation of her walking back and forth every day and kind of partying over at the hotel, but also the jurors are not dummies. And they saw this. They saw And it. I think the coup de grace was that one of our jurors sat outside every day and he had earphones in his um, ears. And the plaintiffs assumed that he was listening to music. His earphones, we learned later, were not connected. Oh, and so oh. he heard a lot of oh, um, oh. Uh, uh, information that uh, lended credence to our defense and uh, hurt the plaintiffs without us even having to impeach her. So long story short, we got a defense verdict. It was, uh, I was with several other defense lawyers. So there was a lot of high fine and we invited the jurors kind of old school way over across the street to have a drink. And some of them came and it was just a great, great result for all of the reasons I've just stated. <laughs> That's a great result. That's one of those things where you got to warn those clients of yours, the jury is watching everything and be very careful, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those Florence lawyers did not know what was happening to them. So, Denise, uh, you do MedMal, and, you know, MedMal lawyers really have a high success rate. And, you know, there's a lot of defense verdicts you're going to get. And you're great trial lawyers because you're trying cases all the time. But, every, you know, you're everybody's going to lose who tries cases. And then... Um, we haven't mentioned this, but it may be interesting to say, you know, what have you learned about how do you deal with the case when it doesn't go the way you think it should go? And, you know, we, somebody else decides our cases, a jury, and we do our best. Um, how have you learned to deal with it on those, probably for you, relatively rare occasions, but those occasions that happen where you, you don't think it's not what you wanted? Well, I can tell you that without question, I have learned how to be a better trial lawyer from every loss. Mm. And I did lose, quote unquote, my seventh jury trial that I tried back in the 1980s. Wow. It was devastating for me. Yeah. Sure. Uh, just devastating because as a young lawyer, uh, I got trials assigned to me and I worked cases up that were defensible cases. And um, so I lost the case and it was a wrongful death of a 30 year old um, uh, physical therapist. Hmm. And it was a suicide. Oh. And uh, I had the emergency room doctor hmm. and the verdict was $11,036. That's pretty low. I was, as I said, devastated by this loss. And I can remember walking out of the courtroom and just almost crying that I'd lost a case. And a very prominent lawyer, this is downtown again, a defense lawyer, uh, 
uh, asked what was what happened. I told him, he goes, Denise, that was not a loss. You know, let me take you across the street again uh, to buy you a drink. Now, it sounds like from these two stories, I'm telling you that I drink a lot uh, after court. And I don't necessarily. But um, uh, but I learned from that case because it dealt with, you know, a lot of issues that uh, as a young lawyer, I needed to learn. For example, the plaintiff's lawyer was a terrible examiner. Mm. And so I thought the appropriate thing to represent my client was to object to every single question. Oh, yeah. And so I objected, I objected, I objected. Uh, the judge was kind of a jerk. He would say things like overruled on that ground. And so then I started objecting, listing all the grounds I could think of. And then they all started getting sustained. Well, the jury afterwards thought there must be something to hide because I was objecting to everything. Yeah, that was a huge lesson for me in that trial. Um and uh, so, you know, there were other lessons in that one. And, and but like I said, every time I've lost a case, uh, I've learned something. And so uh, but I have to tell you that I dwell on it. And I in looking through my knowing that we were going to have this discussion, I did look through my summary of my jury trials and some of them still really sting. Some of them I really feel bad about. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, so. um if you care about your cases and you can learn from your mistakes, because young lawyers are always going to make mistakes, right? because trying a case is not a science, it's an art, and you learn from experience and hopefully you gain judgment um, as to which way to go as you're uh, working up a case or trying a case or thinking on your feet, um, the better lawyer you're going to be. Well, actually, that's the only way you can develop that judgment is through being in the fire of the courtroom and trying cases. And then you get feedback because you learn. And, you know, I'm like you. I think I've learned more from the losses when they happen than from the victories. And um, I like your example of uh, you learn about not objecting. Because I think that, uh, you know, as a young lawyer, you're always scared to death that the other side's going to object and you won't get any questions in. But you learn pretty fast that you can get pissed off if you're stopping the other side from telling their story. And really good experienced trial lawyers don't object very much. Right. Uh, very uh, probably around the time I tried that case, I tried a case as a second chair with one of my senior partners, David O'Keefe. And it was uh, who was just had the best reputation around in the day. This was in the 80s. And um, it was against a lawyer by the name of David Harney, who was oh, yeah. the most prominent plaintiff's lawyer. of yeah. the day. And it was a huge case. It was a, a, a a case where, you know, the plaintiff or the, uh, uh, yeah, I think he was the plaintiff. I don't think he died. He jumped out of uh, a psych unit and became uh, quadriplegic. Oh, okay. And so I can remember sitting next to David and I was like a, you know, bag carrier. I didn't handle any witnesses at that time, but the questions were so objectionable and David wasn't objecting. And I was nudging him and I was I was sending him notes, you know, object, object. And he wasn't objecting. He would wait until just the right moment, you know, on like maybe the seventh or eighth objectionable question. And then he would stand and he would apologize. He would object. Everyone was sustained. And that, again, uh, just observing there and being there in the moment taught me that same lesson about objecting. Uh, so because the, the you know, your initial um, 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 reaction is always going to be to object. Right. Well, there's another critical thing at trial and these, you know, objections and are they sustained or overruled really go to this. And that is when you're trying a case, you better have credibility with that jury. And what if you're objecting and you're getting too many of your objections overruled? You're going to start losing credibility. And what he did was he would wait, let the guy do all this stuff. And 
get up after a long time and raise it and always get that sustained. And boy, did that build his credibility, right? Well, and also credibility with the judge, because I'm yeah. sure the judge was sitting there thinking, why isn't he objecting just like I was? Right. So when he finally did, the judge had had about enough and right. said and, and sustained the objection. And uh, so I, I I absolutely agree with you. You want to keep uh, credibility with the jury and your relationship with the judge is part of that. And uh, your um, uh making the jury believe that all you're looking for is that the truth will come out and that you're not trying to hide any evidence is yeah. very, very important. Yeah. And while we're talking about credibility, isn't it also true in your experience that your your client has to be credible? I mean, your witnesses have to be credible in addition to you being credible in front of the jury and the judge. You, has that been your experience? Well, uh, most definitely, and and um, some of the most difficult parts of trials are when your client is put on the witness stand oh, as yeah. a defense as a defense lawyer in particular, because so many of our clients they're not professional witnesses. If I could testify for them, I would. Uh, but then, if I tried during trial, I'd be shut down. And if I wasn't shut down, the jury would see that I was what I was doing. So. The words have to come from them, and uh, many times our clients, uh, you know, uh, uh, have accents or aren't from this country. They have difficult yeah. communication skills. They are very defensive. They uh, make excuses or explanations, and so much of preparing for trial is preparing your client on not so much what to say, sometimes what to say, but how to say it is so much more important and how to behave in the courtroom, you know, how to dress, how to, where to look. Um, I always tell my clients when they, when you get on the witness stand, do not ever look at me ever after a question is asked and before you give an answer, because that jury is watching you. And if they look at, if you're looking at me, they're going to think you're looking for me to give you some kind of a sign or signal or mm. something of how to answer the question. So if you look at me, I'm going to look away. I'm not going to give you any help at all. You're on your own because the jury has to believe that this is your testimony. And, you know, if I need to object, I will. Uh, but, but that's what you're going to have to do. So are you telling the client to do this when they're being cross-examined? Well, yes. <clears throat> and usually almost, oh man, probably 95% of my cases, my client is called uh, in the plaintiff's case, but often the very first witness under 776, evidence code 776. Right. And so the client hasn't had a chance to sit there and kind of see or observe the process very much, or right. sometimes see anybody witness uh, testify, and we don't know how the judge is going to react. You know, a lot of times my client will say, well, can I ask the judge if I have to answer a question? I go, really, you shouldn't address the judge either unless the judge addresses you, because we really don't know. So um, sometimes I've already tried a case in front of that judge, and I have a little insight about how um, he or she will respond, uh, but um, but yes, it's uh, during during cross-examination or direct under 776. Um, and, you know, when I'm questioning my client, I'll say, you know, answer the other side's questions. Do not look like you're evading the question. But when I ask you a question, I'm going to ask you a lot of open-ended questions. And so I want you to tell your story. Don't just answer my questions by yes. You know, if right. I say, and then I'll say, doctor, can you explain that? And then, I mean, the most frustrating thing is they don't explain it. And I'm going, <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, yeah. this is the time here. But it's hard because none of these uh, parties are professional witnesses. They're professional doctors, dentists, healthcare right. providers. Uh, now, the experts are another question. Right. You know, many of them are professionals, and uh, so you don't have the same issues exactly. 
But with your clients who are medical professionals, like you say, this arena in the courtroom is a foreign place. They they don't understand the rules. They don't understand what's going on. And of course, you're nervous. <laughs> Everybody gets nervous. So what do you, you probably want the clients to look at you when you're asking them questions and answering them. But when the other attorney is crossing them, you don't want them looking at you. You want them looking at either the attorney or somewhere else, right? Exactly. Uh, I, you know, I try to tell them, look at the attorney who's questioning you. And if you just can't look somewhere else, because sometimes right. they hate the guy so bad by then that right. they just can't even look at them, you know. And I also tell my clients, do not look at the jury every time you answer a question, uh, right. because then it looks like you're being overly solicitous. I mean, these are things I've learned over many years of trying cases and getting feedback from jurors. Now, what I will say is when I'm asking questions, I will sometimes say, doctor, can you explain to the jury why? And I know I'm asking for a long explanation. I tell them, find a couple friendly faces on the jury, someone who will actually look at you and not look away. And, you know, don't focus on one person, but, you know, talk to them so that you are a person and they can develop a rapport with you, but don't make it too obvious. Now, these things are very subtle and their trial right. lawyers get it. Witnesses don't always get the subtlety, so, but you do the best you can. What do you teach your clients, your medical professionals about um, how to react or try not to react to things going on either in the courtroom or when they're on the witness stand? Well, I tell them exactly what you said a few minutes ago. The jurors are watching everything. Do not have a facial response, a smirk, a grimace, a eye roll. Now, do as I say, not as I do. The most negative feedback I've ever gotten from jurors, and it, it I still get it, I have to say, occasionally, not as much as I used to, is that I am very reactive. I'm a very reactive person. So I will be absolutely convinced I never rolled my eyes in a single trial. And then they say, Miss Taylor, I, you know, you were you were fabulous, of course, but you know, you rolled your eyes a lot. And that kind of detracted from things. And I said, you know, then I'll say, if that's the worst thing anyone can say about me, then fine. But I tell my clients, I'm the reactive one. I work really hard on it. Please don't react. I can remember. I, sometimes my doctors have a very supportive wife come and sit in the courtroom. And assuming the wife is uh, appropriate in dress and appearance and isn't, you know, 30 or 40 years younger than my doctor or something like that, I say, that's fine. So I, I had a wife who was there every day and I watched her one day and as the jurors were filing out, She's trying to catch everyone's eye and she's smiling at him and she's oh nodding. I went out to her and I, I guess what I said to her, because she reminded me of this several times later, I said, if you want to come to this trial, get that shit eating grin off your face and do not look at those jurors. And I used those words very blunt, but so they took we won and the, and he, the two, they took me out to dinner to a really nice dinner and she brought it up. She could not believe I said that to her, but man, it, it scared her straight and she stopped doing it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, you talking about being reactive. I had a funny experience when I was trying to case, it was against a good friend and we've been at the same defense firm together. And I was now the plans lawyer who's a defense and we settle a case before the trial ended. And the judge says, well, I'd like to give feedback. So I asked jurors to give us this questionnaire. And we went to go talk to the judge afterwards in his chambers. And one of the jurors had written, well, I wish the defense lawyer would not show his obvious disdain for the plaintiff lawyer. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was getting pissed off at stuff I was saying. So, you know, that stuff happens. Everybody is reactive and they, not everybody can keep a poker face. 
Well, you know, it's funny you say that because the case I just told you about that was my quote, most satisfying uh, victory. The judge in that case, I've tried three cases in front of her and uh, she uh, has told me off the record how much she admires me and so on and so forth. And we have actually a very, very good relationship. And, but during the trial, she would scold me because she scolds people and she would scold me and I was the lead wow. defense lawyer and, uh, but she scolded everyone. And I frankly think she would get on me because she didn't want to show, you know, that she actually supported my case and, 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 and liked me as a trial lawyer. But afterwards, one of the jurors said, man, you know, I'm just so sorry the judge gave you such a hard time. <laughs> and, and, you know, I said, oh, no, no, no. She she does that with everyone, you know. But but so it's not just lawyers, it's judges, too. And that can work for or against you. It can make your make jurors feel sorry for you. Or a lot of times they think the judge is God and uh, and uh, it can really hurt you that the judge is on your case. Well, now that you bring that up, uh, what have you learned over the years and how to best deal with the judge if they're being difficult with either your side of the case or with you and the evidence you're trying to present? You know, it's really, it it, it can be really a tough situation. Um, it's, uh, one thing I would say is in most courtrooms I've found, I don't know if you have, but I found that if the judge is a jerk, the staff is usually uh, not, is usually nice and vice versa. Sometimes you have the most wonderful judge that plays good cop and the staff is very difficult to get along with. But yep. I always try to ingratiate myself as much as I can with the clerk and the court reporter and the bailiff if there is one, because those are the people that go back and talk to the judge every day. And they're, they're talking about what's happening out in the courtroom and so forth. I'm sure they are. Uh, so that's one thing. I think that you always have to be respectful yep. and to keep your cool in front of a in front of the jury. Yep. And, you know, if the, everything's going against you, you need to make your record. And if you have to ask for a mistrial, at sidebar or at the end of the day or whenever you have to make your record uh, just in case things go sideways. Um, I cannot remember a case where the judge has been really, um, um, usually I'm teacher's pet because I follow the rules and I stand in the right place and I, 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 I do what I'm supposed to do. But I've had a couple judges uh, that have been very difficult with me. And, and when that happens, the jury usually sees it and they sympathize with me. So I kind of use it to my advantage. Yeah. So that helps you. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about, um, when you're getting ready for trial and you're going to present your case to the jury, trial lawyers like to have themes for their trial. So in your cases, defending medical practitioners would have been good trial themes for you in defending your clients. You know, um, I, I am, I take it on a case by case basis because okay. I do not like to cookie cutter my cases. And what I have seen a lot of plaintiff's lawyers do and a lot of defense lawyers, I've seen them uh, do the same shtick over and over and over. And I think it gets stale. Uh, that being said, right. when you defend doctors, um, there are certain certain things that you do focus on. And, you know, bad things happen to good people. And uh, just because you have a bad outcome doesn't mean that the uh, doctor was negligent. I mean, there's basic themes that revolve around a lot of the jury instructions, which for right. the most part are very favorable for the defense in a malpractice case as opposed to some other case, like an employment case or whatever. So, um, but I think, uh, but I think those are, is, those are kind of, that's kind of the way I uh, handle it. Okay. So you don't use cookie cutter, which I think is good. I think you're right. There are a lot of lawyers uh, and they can be defense and plaintiff. And they may get into that thing of cookie cutter saying the same thing a lot. What would be like an example of one thing you might use that's case specific that can come to mind? 
Oh boy. I don't know. I can't think of anything, Monty. Okay. Um, I, I would have okay. to look at a case and say, oh yeah, that's right. That was my uh, theme in that case. No worries. No worries. Now in all your defense cases, have you heard uh, some themes from plaintiff's lawyers that you thought, boy, that was a good theme. Uh, anything come to mind in that regard? You know, I haven't heard a lot of good themes from plaintiff's lawyers. Hmm. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I've tried a lot of cases against a lot of good plaintiff's lawyers. They, uh, I would say that probably the best plaintiff's lawyers I've tried cases against, I fortunately beat. I would say I've lost a few cases and uh, I was, I would never on any of those cases chalk it up to the trial skill of the plaintiff's lawyer. It was the basic facts of the case or right. the fact that my client was not likable or uh, whatever. So um, again, themes of cases is not something that I really focus on now, other than negative themes that going back to the same case that I said was my most satisfying case, Right. The very old plaintiff's lawyer in that case got up and he said, now, um, there, uh, you know, God, what's the name of the Dickens uh, book? Uh, uh, there's the best of times and the uh, uh, worst of times. Well, I forget what that that uh, book even was, but he starts quoting from a Dickens novel. Okay. And the jury is like this, like <laughs> they don't know what he's talking about because this is obviously something he has done for 50, 60 years as a trial lawyer. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, and no one knows what they are. I mean, it's the kind of thing where people sometimes talk about Marcus Welby MD. Well, right. You know, millennials don't know who Marcus Welby, MD is. They would you know? not. No, but so so I think you have to be careful uh, when you're making analogies or using examples in your final argument or in your trial that do not resonate to um, um, the jurors. And on the other hand, you don't want to try to be all hip and happening and use some TikTok uh, uh, analogy when you really don't know what you're talking about. And they may think you look like an idiot because you're way too old for this stuff. So, I mean, I think so if that brings me to something that I want to say, and I'm sure you'll ask me, but uh, being yourself and being genuine ah. is probably the most important thing you can be as a trial lawyer, you need to believe in your client, believe in your case, be passionate, but be yourself because they, jurors can smell artificial uh, uh, sympathy or, or uh, artificial anything a mile away. Yeah. They can tell if you're, you're being a fake, they mm -hmm. see right through it. They so, do. So like, um, I mean, I don't know about you, Denise, but when I was a younger trial lawyer, and I think this is a temptation for everybody when they're learning the ropes, is you want to listen to these people who are great experienced trial lawyers, and they do these great things, and then you have this temptation to try to copy them. Well, you're not them. So how did you figure that out? And how how did you learn that lesson about you got to be you? Well, uh Early on, I was so fortunate. I tried my very first jury trial by myself with no senior person there with me. They just kind of mm -hmm. let me out. I had been a lawyer for nine months. And um, it was against a very, very, very experienced lawyer who had had 300 jury trials under his belt. His wow. name was Norman Warren Alshuler. But he also had a reputation for never winning a case, although... <laughs> He won a couple, but he took a lot of dogs to trial. So I think mm. that's why they gave it to me. Anyway, um, so I tried cases very early in a in a very trial intensive law firm. And at one point in time, we had more lawyers than I think anyone in the country in our firm that were members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, which at that time you had to have 20 jury trials under your belt to join. Right. And so um, what I would do is I would come back from court and I would have a problem and I would wander the halls. And back then people actually came to the office, unlike post-COVID 
weekdays and they would be sitting in their office at five o'clock or six o'clock working. And I would go from office to office and I would ask for advice. How would you handle this kind of problem that I anticipate is going to come up tomorrow? Or this happened today. Did I screw it up? And these great trial lawyers, these partners in this prestigious law firm I worked in, um, very experienced lawyers would give me their opinion and they would give me completely different opinions. They would be diametrically opposed. One or more of them would give me something. I thought, yeah, you know, I can work with that way of doing it. Right. Someone else would say something. I can't work with that. That taught me do it your own way. Number one, number two, there's no one right way to do it. There really isn't. It's an art. Yep. Um, and so I, I, I had huge mentoring and I had not because they were sitting there and, and watching me try the case or letting me, you know, second chair a case, but because I had that, uh, that support in the background. Now I will tell you, I tried a case against a, another female lawyer, um, a few years ago, and she came from a very prominent plaintiff's firm and the senior partner had just had had all kinds of accolades at that point in time and was, was just a fabulous lawyer. And he did a lot of trial demonstrations. So everyone knew his style. And when I tried the case against her, she was imitating him Ah. And her personality was nothing like his, but I could hear his mannerisms in her presentation. And I thought it was fake. Mm. I knew it was fake because I knew him and I knew her. Um, and I think that translated uh, to the jury. And I thought, gosh, I'm glad I had so many different mentors to choose from and not just one really uh, great trial lawyer to yeah. model myself after. And I've seen that a lot in my practice. I've tried cases with young defense lawyers that seem to be imitating their senior partner. And it doesn't quite come off as well. You know, some people can, can carry certain styles better than others. Yep. So be yourself is a huge um, lesson. That is a huge lesson. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm glad we talked about that. So let me ask you this, with all your trial experience, and people feel different things, have different opinions about this, because we're talking about there's no one way, there's no one, you know, right answer. But in your, in your view, what's the most important part of a jury trial and why? There probably isn't a most important part of a jury trial, but, um, you know, I think the answers you usually get to that question are jury selection. Um, rarely do you get the answer final argument. By the time final argument comes around, you need to have won your case. And from a defense point of view, you need to have won your case um, by the time the plaintiff rests, in my opinion. Um, and have major points there. But, yeah. you know, I, I think that my answer until the more modern day of jury trials would have been jury selection because it's 12 jurors who make make that decision. Right. Um, and now with the advent of the mini openings uh, that are usually given, you know, a five minute opening statement or a 10 minute, whatever the judge allows right. uh, for each side. I think that's a very important part of uh, the trial, because before you pick the jurors, you are able to develop the rapport with them. You are able to show them how organized and how persuasive you can be in just giving what they can expect the evidence to show. Um, and I think it's a really good way to, um, to get the defense case out right at the beginning before you even pick the jurors. It can backfire on you because you can be so good that jurors can say, I can't be fair to the plaintiff after hearing what Miss Taylor had to say or something like that. But um, I think that's an important part of the trial now. Well, yeah. And, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, that wasn't going on. But this is now a wonderful opportunity for you to, in this very brief, persuasive way, tell them your story right up front. Exactly, exactly. And more times than not, I find that 
plaintiff's lawyers will, you know, drag on uh, or they'll be argumentative or they'll do something that creates the need to finally object and the judge sustains or sustains before you object. And then again, right up front, you've developed credibility and the other side hasn't, if that happens. So, um, but, you know, jury selection, uh, boy, it's really, really important. Um, and, um, you know, I could give you a lot of examples, uh, how or why, but, um, but you can't really underestimate it. And uh, I would say that most plaintiff's lawyers now, I believe, at least in a bigger case, will use a juror consultant yep. uh, to help them. And uh, I was, uh, I was from a firm that didn't believe in juror consultants because we tried way more cases than any stinking juror consultant, which isn't true, by the way. Uh, but I early on had a client who insisted on using a juror consultant and someone to help prepare witnesses and to do uh, jury research before trials. And so I very early on in my career worked with those individuals and I find them to be helpful. Okay. So when in the early days of jury consultants, I think you're right. Defense lawyers were not very receptive. And that can still be true with some defense lawyers, but sounds like you learned early on that they really could be helpful. So when you have a case that's a significant case, do you tend to use a jury consultant in all those cases? I I do. And if I have a case that's a significant case, it's going to go to trial. Um, I often will get um, a quote unquote juror consultant um, uh, to start with preparation in the case even before the jury. I made, if I have a defendant who is a difficult witness, I may have the person come in and help me prepare the witness uh, for their deposition. Right. Um, and then if I use that same juror consultant, they already know the case and they can help me uh, pick the jury. Uh, sometimes uh, the carrier, uh, because you know, virtually all of our cases, not all, but almost all of our cases are being financed by an insurance carrier uh, of some sort or a client that is not the doctor. Right. And um, if they approve a consultant, I will use them and I usually recommend, recommend it. Now, have you ever had, when you're in the trial picking the jury in voir dire and you've got your jury consultant there, have you ever had an occasion where the jury consultant is telling you one thing about a potential juror and you're feeling something different and how do you make a decision in that case? Well, you know, I think that in the final analysis, you have to go with your gut. Um, usually uh, in this day and age, uh, my gut isn't different than the consultants, generally speaking. However, I do have a story, again, of many years ago. Um, I had a juror consultant. The carrier insisted on it, and the juror consultant was helping me pick the jury, and there was a person uh, that was coming up next into the jury box, and I had used all my preemptories. Um, um and she said, do not use a preemptory on anybody else because otherwise you're going to get this juror. And I said, yeah, but I really don't like that other juror in the box. That juror is not nearly as bad as the one that's coming up the pike. So I said, yeah, but the judge will never keep that juror because she's expressed an open bias already. So I used my last preemptory. This very biased juror gets in the box and the judge will not excuse her for cause. Oh, no. And I have to sit there with that juror at, for, you know, a three-week trial. And when they go out to deliberate, um, I find out that that juror was the chairperson. Oh, that must have been made, made you happy. <laughs> um, it was awful. And then they came back with a defense verdict. And it was a 9-3 defense verdict. And I asked the other jurors and they said, well, we thought, and this was a case, by the way, where the judge was on me the entire trial and, and the juror felt, the juror felt, jury, jury felt sorry for me. And they said that juror never should have been left on the jury. 
And we knew it. So we made her a four person to make her more accountable to uh, uh, preside over us appropriately. Wow. And, um, and it ended up working. And very interestingly, this was a case that was back in the 90s, way before th there weren't a lot of women lawyers right. uh, 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 out there. And the jurors who voted for me believed that the judge was on me because I was a woman. Okay. And it was a downtown jury and downtown juries are very minority heavy. Mm. And very interestingly, the woman who was who was the presiding juror voted against me. She was uh, Caucasian. The other two jurors who voted against me were Caucasian, and mm. the rest of the panel were minorities of really? one sort or the other. Wow! And that theme was, you know, the judge is picking on Miss Taylor, and and the plaintiff's lawyer was kind of a bombastic, you know, white guy. So, uh, so it was kind of interesting because I did, I, I never really seen a lot of sexism in, um, ju in jury trials, honestly. And I don't, I think my sex has helped me not hurt me in my career yeah. by a long shot. But, you know, if I, if, 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 uh, if I get the benefit in a case uh, in that way, uh, I'll take it. And uh, well, you'll I took take it, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I started about a year before you in the 80s, uh, uh, December of 80. And you're right, back in those early 80s, there weren't really a lot of women trying cases. So it was very male dominated. And there could be a lot of sexism that, you know, you dealt with in the courtroom. Um, so uh, these ladies, I, I think it's great. And, and, you know, another example of that is you had this thing and when the juror is kept on, and this happens in trial, sometimes something happens and you go, holy crap, this is terrible. All is lost. We can't recover from this. And then it turns out, wow, that worked out pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, I have to say that I was sweating bullets because, sure. you know, my client and I didn't listen to my juror consultant that they paid all this money to. Uh, and, and that's why I say in these days, I almost always agree with the juror consultant. I should have kicked that lady off that juror, but you know, live and learn. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, getting help with uh, picking the juries, which is so important, do you also do focus groups and have you found those to be helpful in trying to figure out, how you deal with issues and other things like that. This same client that I told you about uh, that, that early on kind of forced us to use juror consultants also mm -hmm. was a big fan of focus groups. And uh, in the eighties and nineties, we had a lot of birth injury cases and um, I represented the County of Los Angeles. And there were a lot of birth injury cases that came out of that uh, facility because they were delivering you know, way more babies than they had capacity for. And, mm. and there were a lot of issues. Um, and so I early on did several focus groups where I would usually play the part of the plaintiff's lawyer. And then the attorney in my office, who was going to be the lead trial lawyer would be the defense lawyer. And so I, I did it very early on. Um, more recently, uh, I did a focus group in uh, 2022, it was just last year, about a year and a half ago, on a uh, group of cases where we had a bellwether case that was getting ready to go to trial, but there were like 200 plaintiffs that were coming afterwards. So that kind of wow. a case, and we had several defense lawyers so and, and insurance carriers. So uh, the cost that necessarily comes with a case like that was worth it to the client to uh, do the focus group. It was very, very helpful, actually. Uh, it helps. It helps get. I knew the case pretty well because I was doing a lot of the depositions, but a couple of the other trial lawyers that were going to try the case really didn't. You know, they would send their associates. So they kind of were learning the case case during the focus group. It was kind of funny. And, um, you know, but. But it, but it, but I thought it really, really helped us figure out, you know, where we were going to go. And I think plaintiffs' lawyers 
uh, use focus groups a lot. They do. Uh, a, yeah. a lot in particularly big cases. Right. Uh, because there's a lot, a lot to gain and a lot to lose. And so I think the defense needs to uh, come along on some of that. Um, so, and a lot, and a lot of times it just helps you convince the client that they need to settle a case because a lot of times if a case is so big that you can afford a focus group, uh, maybe it's a case that should settle. So I think there's a lot of reasons to use them. Uh, and, yeah. uh, more recently we've been doing a lot of more internet, um, um, research, uh, for less money, a lot of the juror consultants or focus group companies will, uh, send out, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll find uh, jurors that are in the right demographics and we'll do uh, focus groups uh, online. And, like on Zoom, something like yeah. that? Well, no, not even on Zoom, just questionnaires. Like, ah. what do you think about these issues and what do you think about that issues? Or you can do it during COVID. They did it uh, uh, on Zoom. Hmm. Um, but uh, and, and focus groups are different now. You know, it's like like everybody gets a little, you know, like iPad to like put things in. And I mean, we never did it that way back in the olden days, obviously. But right. Um, but I think there's a place for them. But I do think I, you know, I recently was a speaker at a consumer attorneys uh, uh, convention in Las Vegas. And this subject came up and it was a bunch of plaintiff's lawyers, a judge and me. But the plaintiff's lawyers all said, you know, don't go and pay for a focus group on a case where the soaking wet value is going to be a hundred grand, let's say. And right. it's a malpractice case where your uh, attorney's fees are going to be limited and your damages are going to be limited. I mean, right. it's a waste of money. But if you have a case that, you know, is a multi-million dollar case, potentially it's going to be worth it to yeah. maximize your chance of recovery. Yeah, I was at that conference listening to you on that panel. You oh, did a great, okay. You did a great job with all those, uh, all the plaintiff's lawyers. You know, one of the plaintiff's lawyers that I have interviewed on this podcast was talking about focus groups. And one of the lessons that he learned is don't just do one focus group because he said in this one case, he had this issue he was concerned about. He did a focus group and he learned how to get around that. And he only did one focus group. And then he lost the case. And his thought was, you know what? If they're looking for ways to defense you, they're going to find ways. So if there's other problem issues, you better figure out how to deal with them. And then he learned, okay, some cases you got to do serial focus groups to try to find out how to deal with all the problems. I think that's, that's really important. And the one that I just did a year or so ago, we... We did our presentations in front of a big group and then they were split off and there were, I think, four different rooms. Wow. And so that we would get the consensus of four different juries, so to speak. And we would go from room to room to room, you know, hearing all these people. And there's no question, different issues would come up. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the a lot of them were common themes, but some of them weren't. So that's another way that you can do it uh, is to just split up your groups. But even back in the 80s, when I did it for this other company, um, we always did more than one focus group for that very reason, because you would win the case. I mean, the last thing you want to do as a defense lawyer is go do a focus group and win. Yeah. Because then you're expected to win. You know, you want to go and lose it and lose it really bad because then they're going to know this is a risky case to take to trial. doesn't exactly. mean you're not going to take it to trial, but at least they know what the downside is. Yep. But we would do more than one focus group and we would get defense verdicts and we would get, you know, $10 million plaintiff's verdicts and everything in between. And then they know, hey, this is a crapshoot, you know. So, uh, so I do think that's important. So I think you guys were wise back then to do multiple focus groups, just like this other lawyer has mentioned as well. That's a good thing. So in, in the trial of the case, um, one of the things that's going to be important is, you know, dealing with your witnesses, including people like experts and other lay witnesses in cross-examining witnesses, 
I think of crosses being two different types. The more, the most traditional type is what I would think of as the closed cross, where you answer a question, it's yes or no. You're you're just not giving them room to talk, no opening, you're controlling them, you're going down the list. And then there's what I would call kind of an open cross that's often done by plaintiffs, lawyers, people like Jerry Spence have done that, where it's like, they're asking an open-ended question and they're not really asking the question so much for your answer as they're asking a question to tell their story. Um, do you use just one of those forms or both of those forms of cross and how have you found those to be helpful? I use, I'm very traditional. I, I'm old school. I use the closed cross. I particularly since um, back when we started, Monty, um, there wasn't a 2034 uh, uh, exchange of experts. It was called yeah. 2037. Right. And and it was not uh, the first few cases I tried. Uh, I didn't know who the experts were going to be against me until I walked into the courtroom and I would go to the yeah. payphone. This is how ancient I am. I'd go to the payphone and put my 10 cents in and and call the office and say, does anybody know this expert? And um, and they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, he testified against us. And we have a. Uh, uh, oh, that's funny. Uh, we, we, we have some depots on it. And I say him because it was always male, male. Uh, yeah. uh, experts back then. And so um, but but. Early on in my career, we started uh, taking depositions and of of the experts and having an exchange of experts. Yep. And what I if I had an associate taking a deposition, I would say, I don't care what the answer is, but don't let him yammer on and on and on. Get a answer so that I can use it in impeachment. Right. If they agree with us, great. If they disagree with us, I basically don't want them to change, be able to change their testimony and have me not read that testimony in impeachment yep. um, because there's not a clean answer. Yep. And so I'm very prepared when I go in and I, I, I ask leading questions. I control the, uh, the flow by boom, boom, boom. And I know what the answer is going to be and I know what it has to be. And if the, expert starts to weasel i'll yep. let him go for a while and i'll say excuse me you're not answering the question your honor can we just uh ask the witness to um respond to the question and the judge will either do that or say no miss taylor i think he is answering the question then i know what i'm going to get from the judge and yep. i kind of have to you know adjust my uh my responses but i i try to control What's being? I don't ask questions that are going to hurt me. I only ask questions that are going to help me. Sometimes yep. my crosses are very short, and but I get what I need to get. So that's how I do it. Okay, so you're using the closed cross, and when you're deposing your experts or having your associate depose them, are you taking videotape depots so you can prepare video clips to impeach with if you need to? You know, I've. I can't remember a case that I used a video clip in, but but it's a good strategy. Uh, I have been videotaping the depots more recently. You know, we didn't have videotaping even 10 years ago. We weren't uh, videotaping very many depositions. And I normally would not want to videotape a deposition of a plaintiff's expert because if you've got a videotape, uh, of the expert, uh, the plaintiff's lawyer may just decide not to call them live and show your videotape. And, you know, I'm not going to do their work for them. And that actually happened to me on a case where one of my partners went in and uh, took a very um, kind of a very much of a discovery depot. And then the plaintiff's lawyer said, I'm not going to call this expert. I'm just going to uh, show the depot. And so we had this videotape discovery depot that didn't go after him. And my client was just having a fit. I mean, I was having a fit. I couldn't believe it, you know. Um, and uh, it, it all worked out okay because in, a, in final analysis, I can argue, you know, 
they didn't think enough about their case to even bring an expert in. I mean, come on, right. you know, but right. so you can use that kind of thing, but, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I have not used a videotape for that. I think it can be very effective though. Well, I tell you in my experience and I probably was videotaping depots 20, 25 years ago, not for every witness, but it's so much more, powerful and effective with the jury in impeaching the witness than you even showing them the transcript or reading back the transcript because they see them and you know what you got to do with the video depot like that is just the same thing you told your associates with experts you got to make sure that you get a question and they only answer your question and if they go yammer on and go on you got to keep coming back and say well you know let's get an answer to this question until you get it clean. But boy, if you get a clear answer in question, that's powerful stuff in the courtroom with the jury. I guess, I guess probably the reason I, uh, let me let me guess, you did that as a plaintiff's lawyer, correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you're a successful lawyer, as I know you were, you have the uh, ability to have a smaller group of cases and you can really work up the cases you know you're going to go to trial and yep. have the support when yep. you're a defense lawyer and you've got uh, there were times in my my career that I had a hundred cases going at one time and had wow. 10 associates or more working for me and was going from trial to trial to trial and there's just no way that I could prepare like that. I mean, I'd be lucky if I could read the damn depot that morning to cross-examine someone in the afternoon. <laughs> and so I think ideally what you're describing is very good, uh, but I just never got that tech savvy. And frankly, as a defense lawyer, it has only been in the last 10 years where the insurance carrier has agreed to pay for a second chair where you would have a younger lawyer who is more tech savvy or, or, has agreed to pay for a tech tech person like a to tech sit company there who can help yeah 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 I, exactly yeah. well that's and and so 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 it, it, so finances is a lot has a lot to do with it too oh i think you're right and especially about the attitude of a lot of carriers and so that's interesting that in the last 10 years they've been changing their point of view so that's that's a good thing well, I mean, I think part of what we've, they always said, you can always have a second chair. We're just not going to pay for it. And so many times uh, the carrier or, or the law firm, especially when I had a bigger firm, both my predecessor firm and, and then my current firm, um, we would bring someone along at our uh, expense at to expense. train them. But um, the world has changed in yeah. two ways. Uh why are we going to, at our expense, train a young lawyer who two years later is going to leave the firm to go to a more lucrative position because we can't pay them enough as a defense yep. lawyer? That's right. number one. And um, number two, the carriers have finally figured out that, you know, I've been doing this for 42 years. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues who have been doing it for longer and who are older in age than me. Who's going to try their cases? They don't have anybody who's getting into trial uh, to be experienced to handle, particularly the big damage cases. And so yeah. I think they finally realized we have to pay for a second chair. We can, we can see the results. That person can handle a few witnesses. Now, that's not to say that there weren't cases back in even the 90s probably maybe not the 80s where and 80s or 90s where the younger lawyer would cross-examine a witness here right. and there but it just wasn't as common as it is now well i think what you're talking about there i think it is going to be a problem in the next 10 20 years is you got a lot of experienced lawyers like you and me and others but you need experienced younger lawyers to be trying those cases and there's a lot of firms where there's not enough people with real trial experience. It's 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 definitely true. And what I found, of course, I've got a very, very small firm now. I've I've gradually decreased the size of my firm because I do want to be out of this business in the next few years. But there's a lot of uh, partners in firms that do what I do that 
I think they still want to try all the cases. They don't yeah. want a junior person to do it. They love trying cases or the carrier uh, wants them and they don't they don't try too hard to get the younger person in. It's a mistake. It's a big, big mistake. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of trial lawyers are almost addicted to trying cases. And, you know, there's a, a lot of thrill, ups and downs, all that. But yeah, I think there are a lot of experienced lawyers who you got to really back up that younger person and go to bat for them. And a lot of them don't because they want to be trying the case and that's going to backfire. Uh, well, the model, yeah, the, I'm sorry for interrupting. The model used to be when we started that you become a trial lawyer in a defense firm because you get the training and the yeah. discipline and the organization and the skills, and then you become a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, and that was always the model. You know, I, I've, yeah. I've had multiple lawyers who work for me that are now very successful plaintiff's lawyers out there. However, what I'm seeing now is that the younger defense lawyers, even in med mal cases, are not getting into trial. And the lawyers who are trying cases, the young lawyers, are plaintiff's lawyers. Wow. Yeah. So it's really changed a lot. The defense has to make sure they're getting new people to try these cases in the future. Yeah. Well, Denise, this has been a wonderful conversation that I've really enjoyed. And I know people listening are going to get a lot out of. And I think we're getting near the end, but I wanted to ask at this point, is there any advice that you either received that was great advice or that you would want to give to somebody who's a younger lawyer trying to become a good trial lawyer? What would be some advice you'd give to somebody like that? Well, uh, if you can, um, be mentored. Be mentored by someone who you respect and who is, if you want to be a trial lawyer, who is a great trial lawyer. And if you can have more than one mentor like I did, I think it's so important. Yeah, you um, were very fortunate. Yeah. Go watch trials. Uh, try to get in a second chair position. Uh, do whatever you can to get experience early on. Um, I was too dumb and naive to know how hard it was to try a case because my first trial, as I said, was when I was a nine or 10 month lawyer, I wanted, and I could uh, brag to my, you know, uh, insurance carriers. Oh yeah. In my last trial, this is what happened. You know, <laughs> oh, and by the way, I won. And I was able to talk my way into more trials. A lot of young lawyers are afraid to go to trial and yep. the longer you do it, yeah, the longer you practice without going to trial, the harder it is to get into trial because it takes a lot of nerve and guts and you drive to court every day and you feel like throwing up and it is so stressful and uh, yet you do it and it's the greatest thing in the world. So yeah. get in early, have a good mentor and be yourself. Though That's what I would say. Well, great advice. And Denise, thanks so much for being a guest on this podcast. It's been a delight and you have shared wonderful, helpful information. Really appreciate your time today. I hope so. Thank you for asking me to uh, participate, Monty, and I look forward to seeing the final result. All righty.